Gosh, Pete writing all those things about himself and putting them on the board. Uh, we, we had a board like that around here about eight years ago, and I'll just say very much like that, people writing good things about themselves. Well, uh, uh, this past Sunday, uh, Andrea and I left here last week. We went home, we got dressed up, and uh, we went to a wedding where a friend of hers was getting married. And uh, the wedding was up in Benicia, beautiful mansion up there, uh, a view of the bay and a wonderful reception afterwards. We got to make some new friends, uh, had wonderful food and lots of, of dancing. Um, I am not a dancer, but I did, <laughs> I did the one obligatory slow dance you have to do uh, when you're with your wife at a wedding. So I did my part. And uh, after about four hours, we decided it was time to go. It had been a very long day, and uh, I'm, you know, we've been here all morning, and, and uh, Andrea said, hey, before we go, I just have to get a picture with the bride and groom so that I can send it to some mutual friends who are not here tonight. They would love to see this. And I thought, do you know how hard it's going to be to grab the bride and groom at their own wedding reception? They're mingling with all the guests, and they're, they're dancing out on the floor, and you're going to drag them away to like the perfect picture spot just so that you can text this to some friends? We're going to be here another hour while you go try to get them alone. Uh, but Andrea is Andrea, and somehow she makes it happen, because Andrea can make things happen. Uh, the bride is out on the dance floor dancing to the Cupid Shuffle with like 50 other people, the groom is standing outside with me because he doesn't want to dance to the Cupid Shuffle any more than I do. And as the song ends, Andrea runs in and she grabs her and she brings her out, poses the two of them, steps back with her phone, takes the picture, and uh, we congratulate them one more time and we say goodbye. We get to the car. I pull away from the venue and Andrea looks at the picture. And what does she see? that someone, right at the moment she snapped the shot, somebody moved into the background in the worst possible way. And she looked at me, like as if to say, should we go back? <laughs> and I pretended I didn't see her look and I just kept driving. <laughs> well, have you, have you ever noticed that you can spend lots of time creating the best setting for a photo, getting everybody just right, and then someone or something moves into the background and you don't see it at the moment, you don't see it till later. Uh, we have an expression for this, right? What do we call this? Photo bombing. Yeah, when someone usually unintentionally walks into the background of somebody else's photo. Uh, let, me, let me show you a few of these that I found this week, all right? Um, here's one where a few people were photo bombed by <laughs> Prince Harry recently. Actually, that makes that photo way better. Uh, here's one that a guy took of his girlfriend at brunch. It wasn't until later that they, they noticed that kid in the window. Uh, here's one that took place uh, at a wedding on a farm. I guarantee you that is not posed, chasing that around. Uh, here's one where someone's dog photobombed them and dropped another bomb as well. And then uh, let me just show you my favorite, um, my favorite of them all, this one right here. I mean, they chose to get married in an aquarium. Obviously, a beluga whale in the background is what they were hoping for with that, right? Well, photo bombs, where something that is not meant to be in the picture that's usually kind of wrong ends up in your picture. You could have the best picture in the world, but it is not the best picture in the world because of this one thing that shows up that isn't quite right. And once you see that wrong thing in the picture, you can't unsee it. Your mind is drawn to it over and over again, to the thing that is wrong. Now, the good news for Andrea, she had just gotten a new phone, a Google Pixel. And when she pulled up the picture and noticed the photobomb, the phone asked, would you like me to remove the person from the background? 
And with the touch of a screen, the thing that was wrong just disappeared. I don't know how it does it. I don't know how it fills something in on the other side that it never saw in the first place. But technology has made it so that you can remove the thing that is wrong and replace it with something else. That's pretty cool. What I will say, if only it were that easy for everything else that our eye sees, right? Um, have you ever been to the movies and noticed a tear or a stain on the movie screen? I don't know how a movie theater gets a, a stain on their screen. I imagine some kid throws a slushie at the screen and then somebody has to work really hard to get it off and, and, and maybe they do their best, but the stain is still there as clear as day and, and you didn't notice it at the beginning of the movie, but all of a sudden there's a very bright white scene and it is there as clear as it's ever been and it bugs you and then you can't stop seeing the stain for the rest of the movie. What's happening there in you is what I wanna talk about today. Part of what it is to be human is, is to look at something that is 99% perfect and somehow see the one little thing that is wrong and then find yourself focused, maybe even obsessed with that one thing. And, and while that is probably okay with uh, photos and movie screens, this very human tendency in us carries over to some areas where it can do real damage in our lives. Um, I remember I had a friend in grad school who was in his 30s and he was single and this friend was um, lovesick. That's the best word I can come up for with that. What I, what I mean by that is he just could not stop thinking about he, how he desperately wanted a girlfriend. And everything we did, everywhere we would go, this was what was on his mind. Every conversation we had over a meal was about this. Every time we'd go to church, he was focused on this, finding a girlfriend. And so our friend group of guys, we would constantly be putting really wonderful women in front of him. And every one of them, every single one over the years had something that he found wrong with them. He found something wrong in every single person. Uh, to be clear, usually something very superficial, stupid things like hair color, something that once he saw it, he could not unsee it. All he could see was this thing. And you, I found myself wanting to say to him, hey, God forbid any of these women find out what's wrong with you, my friend, because <laughs> there's a lot more than one thing and your stuff is real. But I will tell you, <laughs> this tendency to focus on what's wrong led to a pretty lonely life for a while. And I wonder for you, um, when you look at the work that you've poured yourself into, and all you can focus on is, is what's wrong with it, or when you look at the, at the work that others have done, and all you can think about is the stuff that they missed, or when you look at your spouse or your partner and you find yourself distracted by, by what's missing in them that you really wish they had, or when you look at your, your kids and you can only think about what they could be doing better, when you look at your life and all that God has blessed you with and you find yourself asking, yes, but why hasn't God done this? I, I wonder what damage that might be causing that you're not even aware of. While it's perfectly fine to notice what's wrong, there are some areas of our lives where after we notice, we can't unsee it. What's wrong becomes part of our thoughts and it does damage in our lives. And, and can I tell you, I, I think it keeps you from what God has for you. And it is why, in his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul gives us some things to think about instead of the things that are wrong. 
Let me show you the passage that we're spending time in this series. In fact, the first week, we read this together out loud. We didn't get to do that last week because we ended up having to pause the series due to a COVID thing. So technically, this is our second week of the series. But I want to ask you to read this out loud with me again. Would you read it? Philippians 4, 8. Let's read it together. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We said the first week that in this passage right here, Paul gives us eight filters, these eight things we just read, eight filters that we are supposed to run our thoughts through. And and the two that we're going to look at today, I think, are there to correct this tendency in us to focus on what's wrong. And I should say, actually, not just correct it, but even shift our thoughts to something that is going to be so much more life-giving. I want to give you two more of these filters today. But before I explain which two we're going to look at, I want to show you something else in Scripture that kind of sets up these two things. And the bonuses, I think you'll possibly see yourself in this thing that I'm going to show you. All right? Um, In the Old Testament, in Exodus, there is a wonderful story about the Israelites being freed from slavery and getting out of Egypt. Uh, If you're kind of new to the Bible or or to church, it's a big story. It's epic. Movies have been made about it. This is the story with the locusts and the frogs and the Nile turning to blood and, and the Red Sea ultimately parting. And God, through his leader Moses, frees the Israelites from slavery and he leads them out into the desert as they make their way to the promised land. This is the story of people being saved and set free. Now, I wanna put a timeline up on the screen behind me, and I wanna show you something, you know, maybe you've, you've heard this story before, but you've never really seen it laid out like this, all right? Exodus 14 is the story of that escape that I just told you about, the Red Sea crossing. And uh, so you know what happens right after that in the Bible, after they cross the Red Sea, we read that the people sing a song about how wonderful God is that he's freed them, that he's given them victory. It's a beautiful song, Um, at least the lyrics. I have no idea what the melody was like. They celebrate their escape. But then in chapter 15, the very next thing that happens after this escape, the very next thing, right after the song, it says, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur and for three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. Marah means bitter. By the way, I had a friend in college named Marah. Once I learned what, what that meant, I wondered why her parents thought that was a good idea. Verse 24. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? And I I want you to just see this. The Israelites exhibit this very human tendency of noticing what's wrong. They've just been saved. They've just been freed. They wrote a song about it that charted at the ancient billboard number one spot. And three days later, three days later is all it takes, they grumble. Now, in fairness, I would too. Three days with no water? And then when they find some, it's bitter? I would complain too, because... It's our human tendency. 
Now, God tells Moses, throw some wood into this water and I will make it fit to drink. So Moses does this. He throws wood in and, and it works. The water is fine and they drink. And then it says in the very next verse, verse 27, God led them to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, which means there was a lot of water. And they camped there near the water. So, so God fixes what's wrong at Marah, the bitter water, and then after that, he leads them to an oasis in the desert where there's tons of water, but they grumble, they complain, they notice what is wrong. And I want you to see what God does. He fixes what is wrong. Now, the very next chapter, 16, very next chapter, right away, take a look at this, verse two. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, in Egypt, we sat around pots of meat, we had all the food we wanted, but you brought us out into this desert to starve all of us to death. They grumble again. Now, this time, God sees this, and he sends bread from heaven, manna, daily bread, this incredible miracle. God says, every day, I will send enough bread for every single one of you to eat. In, in this chapter, it actually tells us it is perfect. Everyone has just enough bread so they're not hungry, but not so much that they make themselves sick. It is perfect. God fixes this thing that is wrong that they are obsessed with, and all is well until... We get to chapter 17, very next chapter, verse one. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And so they quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And so God sees this, and, and I imagine God goes, don't they know from two chapters ago that I'm going to solve this water problem? Don't they trust me by now? I made bitter water good. I led them to an oasis. Before that, they saw me part the Red Sea. I'm pretty good with water. <laughs> Why are they obsessed with this again? But no, God tells Moses, I want you to go strike that rock over there with your staff. And when you do, when you hit the rock, water's gonna come out of this. And so Moses does. And it works, and the people drink, and they are satisfied. But, but, is it weird to you? that on their journey, God led them to water, and then after that, he created a daily miracle that would take place every day for 40 years and giving them bread, and that they would pick a fight with Moses about how there is no water again? I mean, it's not weird, because you would want water too, but what's weird is, they know God is gonna come through. He's done it before with this very thing with water. Now, some chapters pass where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Chapters 18 through 31 are mostly that and then explaining the commandments in great detail and giving Moses instructions for how to build a tabernacle and who to choose to be priests and what the Ark of the Covenant ought to look like. It's pretty much 14 chapters of all of that stuff. And while that may be a lot of chapters, it's not necessarily many days or weeks or months. And at the end of Moses getting all those commandments from God, while he is still up on a mountain, ready to come down the mountain and share the commandments, we read in Exodus 32, the very next sequence of events, almost simultaneous to this last one, 
When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to that guy. The people complain again. Why is Moses taking so long? Where is our leadership? Where is our God? Once again, the people notice what's missing, what's wrong, what's not the way they want it to be in their lives. Verse two, Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings. They brought them to Aaron and he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then he said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Okay, if the first three complaints were just complaints, this is when it gets damaging. They say, we cannot stop thinking about how Moses and God are taking way too long, so we will make ourselves a new God. It's like you or I saying, I will fix the stain on this movie screen myself. I will fix the problem I find in my coworker, or I'll fix the problem in my spouse. We will remove the problem from the photo with the simple touch of the screen. They create a golden statue of a calf to worship. Now, that part of the Exodus story is not the point of the day. I'm not going to tell you all the details. Let me just say, when God sees this, it does not end well. He has a very strong reaction. And I will tell you, I'll tell you, the complaints stop for a while. But I will also tell you that by the time we get to the book of Numbers in the Bible, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, by the time we get to Numbers, we read them complaining even more. They complain about the food. Not that they have no food, it's just that they don't like the food they have. In Numbers 14, they complain about Moses and Aaron. They say they're bad leaders. In another spot in Numbers, they complain about Moses' wife. My favorite is number 16, when they complain about God judging them for complaining. <laughs> and, and here is why I tell you this story. God was meeting all of their needs, all of them. And it says in Deuteronomy, even the clothes that they were wearing did not wear out. But even with all of their needs met, all they could do was focus on what was wrong at any given moment. And, and there is a truth you find when you dig deep into what is a very long four-book section of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Even when the thing that is wrong is made right, our tendency is to find a new wrong thing. All right, that's a tongue twister. Let's just say that together, all right? Can we read it? Even when the thing that is wrong is made right, our tendency is to find a new wrong thing. You think you will be satisfied once that one thing gets fixed, but you will not be. You won't. There will always be another thing to fix. And while that is okay when it comes to home improvement projects, and it's okay when it comes to your car, and it's okay when it comes to restoring that piece of furniture you've been working on forever, it will make you miserable if you do that with yourself, with other people, and with God. Because the truth is, happiness is not found in fixing something that is wrong. It's found in shifting your focus away from what is missing. So, with the time that we have left, let me show you what Paul tells us we're supposed to shift our focus to or filter your thoughts through. 
Back to our verse, Philippians 4.8. Let me give you which two filters Paul brings up that can kind of help us with this damaging thinking. The first is, whatever is lovely, and then if anything is praiseworthy, he says, think about these things instead. Let's talk about what those words mean. Lovely. The Greek word here for lovely is prosphiles, and it only occurs in this one place in the Bible, but we know what this word means because it occurs elsewhere in ancient Greek literature. Lovely here simply means pleasing to the eye. Now, I will tell you, your Bible has the word lovely in other places in the Old Testament, which are translated from Hebrew, a different language in the Old Testament, but when you see the word lovely in the Old Testament, it means the same thing, pleasing to the eye. In fact, in the Old Testament, Lovely is almost always talking about a person. Let me just show you a couple examples, all right? Song of Songs 2.14, we'll put this up, and this is a love letter, really. My dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely, pleasing to my eye. I'll give you one more here. Genesis 29, 17. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Uh, Kind of an unnecessary diss on Leah. Not sure why the writer thought they had to put that in there. But lovely in the Bible is very much about beauty. And you might You might think as you hear me say that, what Paul is telling us then to shift our focus to or filter our thoughts through are beautiful things and beautiful people. Stop focusing on on people or things that have flaws and faults. Instead, focus on things or people that are beautiful. Make every day a beauty pageant. Surround yourself with beautiful people. If that were the case, you would not be listening to me right now. But that is not what Paul is saying here. Can Can I tell you what Paul is actually saying? Start to notice what is lovely or beautiful in everything. Start to find beauty in all of it. Um, When we first got married, before we had kids, we had the greatest dog in the world. Uh, Her name was Boo. This is her right here. Uh, Boo was born on Halloween. Uh, She was ugly, but in her ugly was so much beauty. Um, there is this thing about English bulldogs, or any bulldog really, they are considered some of the ugliest dogs you will ever see. If you just go Google ugly dog, that's the first thing you see. Um, they snore all night long, loud snores, you guys. Uh, they are very difficult to pick up and carry with you when you need to, but they are beautiful, and not just because they're trendy, they are a walking reminder that there is beauty in everything. <laughs> Lovely means to look at another person And instead of focusing on what is wrong, focus on what's right, what is working, what is not wrong, what is not missing, what is beautiful. Now, let's talk about why this understanding uh, or filter, really, uh, through the word lovely is very important in our world right now. This is so important. Um, if If you're a teenager in this room or you're a parent of a teen or a grandparent, listen up, all right? A number of years ago, uh, Snapchat, Instagram, other apps, they started offering the opportunity to filter your appearance uh, once you would take a picture before you would post it. You could just apply a filter. Uh, I was gonna actually, I was gonna show you a picture of a person before and after one of these beautification filters, but I realized if I do that today, I'll just be doing the thing we're trying to undo. But if you're unfamiliar, all of a sudden, people with the beautification filters could make themselves look skinnier, and sharper or darker or lighter, blemish-free. And can I tell you, 
they surveyed teenage girls and they asked them to define what is lovely, what's pleasing to the eye, and what they described was small nose, big eyes, clear skin, big lips, basically an Instagram filter. It changed people's definition of beauty. Specialists in eating disorders and, and mental health are seeing anxiety develop when girls live with their disconnect between their online self and their in-person self. Half of 13-year-old American girls reported being unhappy with their body. Half. Half of 13-year-olds. That number increases to nearly 80% by the time they hit 17. 80%. Body image is listed in the top four worries among young women. And, and what's at the core of this is thinking that what it is to filter your thoughts through lovely is to filter yourself, to make yourself lovely. And that's not it. You ready? It's to find lovely in the real, imperfect thing. So, how do you do that? How do you apply this filter? Okay, you ask this question. You ask this question. What is lovely, beautiful, enjoyable about this person or this thing that I have been neglecting to see? If you want to apply the lovely filter, think about whatever is lovely, you ask, what is lovely that I have not been seeing? For every filter, we're giving you a question that will help you shift your thoughts. What is beautiful about this person or this thing that I want to grumble about that I have been neglecting to see? If you ask this question, it will automatically apply the filter of lovely to your thoughts. It'll shift you from what's wrong thinking to what's right thinking. Now, if you're able to ask that question and shift your thoughts, it also causes you to use this second filter, praiseworthy. Let's talk about praiseworthy, the second one. The Greek word for this is epinos, and it means to heap praise on something or someone. Now, let's, just, let's stop right there. What is the opposite of heaping praise? Heaping criticism, right, criticism. And, and we all know what it's like to have criticism heaped on us, and, and, and many of us know what it's like to be the heaper. And this verse suggests that if you wear your critic hat, you will struggle to find anything praiseworthy in this world. Criticism obstructs praise. Um, in his book, Blink, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the New York Met Orchestra and how many years ago they thought that their audition process was perfect. They believed their first impressions listening to somebody play an instrument were absolutely unbiased. That it was all about the music. They believed this until somebody had the idea of putting screens up between the judges and the individuals who were auditioning. And within 30 years of putting these screens up in front of the, the, the judges, the number of women in this top US orchestra increased by five times the previous amount. Musicians who had previously been eliminated were now accepted into the orchestra because when all the other factors somebody could criticize were removed, like appearance, like prejudice, gender, all, that, all those things could be removed, all that was left was pure ability. And once the, the criticism things were gone, all that could be left was praise. Um, he tells a story. He tells a story of this female instrumentalist uh, named Julie Landsman. Julie auditioned for a role of the principal French horn at the Met. Uh, and the screens had just gone up in the practice hall. And at the time, there were no women in the brass section of this orchestra because everybody knew women could not play the horn as well as men. But she came, she sat down, and she played, and she played well. 
Uh, she actually told him, she said, I knew in my last round that I had won before they told me. It was because of the way I performed the last piece. I held on to the last high C for a very long time just to leave no doubt in their minds. And she said they started to laugh because it was above and beyond the call of duty. And then Malcolm Gladwell writes, but when they declared her the winner and she stepped out from behind the screen, there was a gasp. It wasn't just that she was a woman and it wasn't just the bold high C, which was the kind of macho sound they expected from a man only. It was because they knew her. Julie had played for the Met as a substitute. However, until they listened to her with just their ears, they had no idea she was that good. And when Paul tells us to filter our thoughts by what's praiseworthy, he's not telling us only think about things that are above criticism, that are beyond criticism. He's telling us this. He's saying, you can find something worth critiquing in anybody, anyone. Focus on what's praiseworthy about that person or that thing instead. You saw that video earlier of people in the office finding things wrong with each other and criticizing each other. You know, we get into these patterns of seeing negative all around us. And, and when we get into them, it can be so hard to see anything else. And it is why Paul writes, no, you can change those patterns by finding something praiseworthy in that person. Now, I recognize you might not do that with people at work, but you do it with your family or you do it with yourself, you, you do it with friends. How often have you looked at somebody's actions and thought the worst of them, and it's left you kind of distant from them? It would be so different if you could filter your thoughts through praiseworthy. Charles Swindoll, who's a longtime pastor, in fact, he's like in his 90s now, he tells the story about a time he was speaking at this Bible conference, and he says on the first night, um, he briefly met a couple who seemed to be very friendly and very glad to be at the conference. However, as the week went by, he noticed that the, the, the gentleman, 10 minutes after he would start speaking, every meeting, this husband would fall fast asleep, 10 minutes in. And it began to really irritate him. By, by the last meeting at the end of the week where he spoke, he was convinced this guy is only here to please his wife. He's not a, a serious Christian, you know, all that stuff. But at the very end of the last meeting, when it was over, the wife requested to speak to Charles for just a few minutes. And, and he figured she wanted to talk to him about how her husband was so clueless about spiritual things. And, and, and then she mentioned that her husband had terminal cancer and that they had attended the conference mainly at his request. It was his final wish to be at the conference, even though the pain medication he was on would make him drowsy. And then she said, he loves the Lord, and you are his favorite Bible teacher. He wanted to be here to meet you and to hear you no matter what. And, and Charles Swindoll wrote, I stood there all alone as deeply rebuked as I have ever been. See, here's what's true. That thing or that person that you're critical of might be the most praiseworthy one in the building. You, you, you've heard the phrase, you never know what somebody else is going through. You never know what praiseworthy thing exists in the person that you criticize. And, and these thoughts that we have up here are not just internal. They really do shape who we are and how we treat other people. And if you don't apply these filters to your thoughts, the filter of lovely, finding what's lovely, finding what's praiseworthy, you will be shaped into somebody who's critical and constantly focused on what's ugly. And by the way, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, for in the same way you judge others, 
you will be judged. And with the measure you use on it, it will be measured to you. I don't know about you, I would rather be praised by God than critiqued. I'm, I'm gonna use this filter. Here, here's the question that you can ask that will help you use it. The praiseworthy question, am I being overly critical as opposed to seeing the best in others? Actually, let's put them both up, lovely and praiseworthy. What might you see differently, experience differently, if you choose to have these filters? In fact, what might you have missed in the world around you? What might you have missed in the people around you that is so wonderful? Let's be people who do not miss a single good thing that God has put in front of us. If we're gonna be obsessed with anything, let's let it be finding lovely and praiseworthy things that God has put in this world and in the people around us. All right, would you stand with me? Let's close in prayer together. God, I don't know what it is about the way you created us, and maybe it's just the fact that we're fallen and we get things wrong, but, but the truth about us is, God, that as beautiful as this world is that you've put around us and the people around us, we often focus on the one thing that's wrong and missing. And I love that you constantly remind us through each other, God, through scripture, that we are to focus on the good things that you have put in our lives. And so, may we be people in a world full of people who criticize, in a world full of people who, who feel like they've got to filter things to be lovely, may we be people who find lovely in the real and the imperfect and always find things to praise. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thanks for coming today. Oh, by the way, do not forget to turn in your surveys at the baskets on the way out. All right, thanks for coming. <laughs>